Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. Hello, and welcome to The Saturday Show. Today, as usual, we have two segments, one from the vaults and one from the past week. This past week, we spoke with Chuck Klosterman. That's not the one from the past week. That'll be the one from the vaults, a Chuck Klosterman interview from 2016. But first, here's a spiel I did about daylight saving time. But really, it was about getting in touch with science and admitting that I'm wrong. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now the spiel. It was with unanimous consent that the Senate voted to adopt daylight saving time as the standard time throughout the land. Henceforth, time will need no modifier, be it standard or daylight saving. It will just be called time. And for a time, a long time, this was my position. I asked presidential candidates about it. They laughed, as if, in the case of senators I talked to, it wasn't a serious proposal that could eventually be taken up by their very body, the U.S. Senate. But it is bodies that will take up or be put down with the sun, or slightly in opposition to it. For after I championed my idea of basking in sunlight longer into the day, I was alerted that there was a community who disagreed with me, and this was not an easy community to dismiss. They were the scientists. Sleep scientists, a robust and well-rested lot, who, I hear, were universal in their condemnation, of daylight saving time as just time. Now I have to say, the main thrust of my proposal was to eliminate the shift. I hate the shift, the falling and the springing and the springing and the falling, awful. And I was familiar with studies, a bit familiar, that showed the impact of the shift was bad, more accidents, more heart attacks. But I thought that was because of the shift to daylight saving time, not because of daylight saving time. I said to myself, well, if being out of sync with a natural time zone was so bad. How does China deal? They have one time zone for the whole huge country. I haven't heard much about their far-flung provinces, the ones far away from Beijing, dropping in productivity. It's not a thing that's associated with much of China. And how do you tell if daylight saving time is to blame and not the shift to daylight saving time? Losing the hour of springing forward, it hurts. 
Furthermore, I had heard about the sleep experts, but I said to myself, do sleep problems really spike during daylight saving time? I know some sleep experts. They don't say to me, oh, can't talk. This is daylight saving time, Mike. This is my heavy season. Like an accountant has April 15, I have daylight saving time. And all this concern about natural light, you gotta have the natural light, live with the natural light. We haven't lived by natural light since Edison. No wait, since candles. These were the counter arguments running through my mind. But in truth, it wasn't so much that I was actively rebutting the counter arguments, it's that I wasn't hearing most of them. I did research into what objections there were to permanent daylight saving time, and I did not encounter the health objections or the sleep expert objections. The objection I kept hearing, it really was kids standing alone in the dark waiting for the school bus. A couple weeks ago, I documented this on my program. It is a rarer, this, this program right here, the gist. It's not that common occurrence that kids even take the bus to school. And concerns about kids getting hit as they waited for the bus, this seems to be just a product of sensationalist reporting in the 70s. I felt like I did not deserve letters like this one from a listener, Mike. I like your podcast for challenging conventional wisdom. And so I was disappointed when you attacked opposition to making daylight saving time permanent based on claiming it was driven by the safety of kids going to school. Classic straw man argument. Pick one reason, pick on it, and ignore anything to the contrary. No, not a straw man, sir. The only man that I was seeing or hearing about. Kids in the dark. Kids in the dark. But in the spirit of inquiry, I decided to stop cursing the darkness and expose myself to the light of a leading expert, Elizabeth Clerman, professor of neurology at Harvard. I would argue for permanent standard time. Not eliminating, but permanent standard time. Clerman is a research investigator at the Massachusetts General Hospital and a physician in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's qualified. She walked me through the best arguments for permanent adoption of standard time, not daylight saving time. First off, changing to daylight saving time. That really is terrible. We know that there are more heart attacks, more cardiovascular disturbances. There's more missed doctor's appointments. There's more car accidents. There's more many, many things that happen in the spring, just in the first week. And what about when we were weeks into daylight saving time? Well, she put some analogies on the table. One, think of changing time zones, which is really what happens when you lose an hour, gain an hour. It's you're shifting to a different time zone. Think of that like jet lag. And if you think about daylight savings time, it's like living in the wrong time zone. You're living in Chicago with the sleep-wake cycle of Chicago, but you're trying to work on Boston time. And that's the equivalent of social jet lag. Okay, I buy it. Clerman lays out the costs of living with jet lag. For many people, their sleep-wake cycle was different during the week week than it was on the weekend. They would get up earlier, they would go to sleep earlier, and on the weekend, they would go to sleep later and get up later. Almost as if they had jet lag, right? You're living mm -hmm. in sort of one time zone during the week and another time zone on the weekend. And the people for whom it's worse are night owls, people who like to stay up late. And therefore the people with more social, you can study people with more social jet lag versus people with less social jet lag. And people with more social jet lag have higher obesity, higher depression, higher cigarette smoking, higher of virtually everything that's been studied. They have worse health outcomes. And so this is an analogy of even an hour or two of shifting back and forth or shifting, living against your body clock's time. I thought that was an okay argument, but maybe 
It's not the misalignment of the sun that's causing all this rest on the weekend. Maybe it's that the weekend allows for different and more sleep because there are fewer obligations. It seems hard to isolate that one out. But there was another analogy out there, and I, I have to say I found this one very compelling. The difference between the eastern part of a time zone and the western part of a time zone. So if you think of a time zone as a one hour apart, one hour distance from the eastern to the western part, we can look at health on the eastern part of the time zone and the western part of the time zone. And on the western part of the time zone, there are multiple studies, at least two, that show that there's more cancer, there's more diabetes, there's other health consequences just from being on the western part of the time zone. And being on the western part of the time zone is an analogy to daylight saving time because that's where there's more misalignment of clock time. This is hard to rebut. The more misaligned with the sun, a person is taking into account everything else, the more sleep they miss and the more their health suffers. Look at the Western edge, look at the Eastern edge, Western edge, less aligned with the sun. They're suffering. This was good stuff. The science was working on me. And I'm not going to admit that the Harvard trained expert knew more. It could just be that she's in Massachusetts and I'm in New York, more Westerly than Massachusetts. So I'm a little bit of a cognitive disadvantage. I allowed Professor Clerman to make one last argument. And finally, this also means the kids are going to be going to school in the dark. Sorry, we'll not allow it. See all previous shows. But I have to say the science around time zones, that stuff seemed compelling. And the scientists are united. And the reasoning seems pretty strong. Dr. Clerman even played ball with my China fascination. Do you know if anyone studied the effect of, I think this is right, China has one time zone for yes. the whole massive country? Yeah. So are, are people in the Western time zone there less productive, sleepier, all the effects we're talking about? If you know anybody who has access to that data, let me know, because there are a whole bunch <laughs> of us who are trying to get access to those data. Absolutely. So you think that China actually has the data? They just won't give it to you? <laughs> or maybe we haven't asked the right people. I don't know. I just don't know anybody who has access. I say we got to elevate that above the Wuhan lab stats. Tell the WHO. Dr. Clerman refused, however, to take a stance on the question of if just DST, always DST, was preferable to the current system of switching times that we have now. If my only options are permanent daylight saving time versus switching back and forth? Yes. I take the fifth. Clerman is such a devotee of standard time that she refused all my attempts at ranking the alternatives or committing to the idea that my preferred position, permanent DST, is at least less bad than the status quo. But I have to say, I did find her argument or her presentation of the studies hard to rebut. I think that permanent DST would be better than what we have now. I'd hate to imperil this, a rare case of needed reform by nitpicking the proposed new rules as less than perfect. But the science seems compelling. Permanent standard time is better than permanent daylight saving time for health, for sleep, for car accidents, but not, I maintain, for that terrible possibility of school bus stops representing a potential point of carnage at every suburban corner. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. 
Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And here now, an interview that I did with Chuck Klosterman. I think I've interviewed Chuck about every one of his books that has come out since I've been doing the show. And this interview in 2016 was typically insightful and delightful from my end. Enjoy. Chuck Klosterman's new book, But What If We're Wrong, is full of trenchant arguments and clear-eyed predictions, which must be very embarrassing to him because, as we know, they're going to wind up being wrong. This is the premise of his book. We're thinking about the present as if it were the past. And the basic conceit is all this stuff, subjective analysis of who's a great rock musician to gravity itself, this stuff that we just take as true, even if we hold a little asterisk out and say, well, there's a chance it won't be true, but really, come on, it's true. There's a huge chance it won't be true. And Klosterman interrogates this, and now I interrogate him. Hello, Chuck. Hey, how are you doing? Is this because you're, you, have a, you have a lot of things that you do and a lot of different ways of viewing the world, but do you see yourself as essentially a critic? There's a lot of subjectivity to this, and so much of the critic's job is to say this or that will stand the test of time. I guess. I mean, I suppose in a sense this is a book of criticism, but it doesn't feel like the criticism I've done before. Right. It, it, it seems different. The, the premise, I guess I, I slowly came up with over a few years unknowingly. Like I was pursuing a lot of other kinds of writing and sort of a lot of other areas. And, and then I had basically one weekend <laughs> where I decided to write this specific book because two things happened. First, I was watching the the Fox reboot of Cosmos, the, the, <laughs> the science series Cosmos, and and you know they did a pretty good job. In fact, I think it's interesting how, in in a sense, Fox almost should have got more credit for doing this. I mean, it was the most pro science show that had ever been on television, which kind of contradicts everything about you know their news institution. But regardless, yeah. I'm watching this, and to me, the most interesting parts were when. They would talk about some kind of arcane scientist from like the 15th century and kind of an unknown person to us and essentially say this person had an idea. And prior to that, everyone had thought one thing and then he thought something else. And within a generation, it had just kind of become the accepted way to, to, to think and feel about reality. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this must be going on all the time. There just must be this continual process of people who believe something and then one idea shifts that and we move on as if we'd always pretended to think this way. Yeah, that's called the historical fallacy. Yeah. The stuff that happens was deigned to happen. And if you apply it to intellectualism, oh, the stuff we think is, of course, what we always thought or what we were going to necessarily think. And it's not true. Well, or, or just the, the, the way sort of human nature works. You mm -hmm. don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the stability of your own thoughts. You just, they just kind of exist. Around the same time, I was reading about Moby Dick. I wasn't reading Moby Dick, but I was reading about it. You know, Herman Melville sort of believed this was going to be his masterwork and this is defining piece of literature. And then it came out and it got mixed reviews and it didn't sell that great and kind of ruined his life and then he died. And it wasn't until after World War I that there was a rediscovery of yeah. this book, not only as a good book, but like this is the book, okay? Like this is the great American novel. 
So the first example, the science thing is like objective ideas. Mm -hmm. And the second one is obviously subjective beliefs, the way we perceive art, the way we perceive these things. And I just thought to myself, what if we use the criteria we use for thinking about history and apply it to right now? Because in the day-to-day, -day, we sort of look at these things very differently than the way we look at things that happened 400 years ago. So when I'm saying like, you know, uh, you know, what if we're wrong? Well, I mean, what if we're right? That would have a meaning too because that would be – that would kind of contradict the history of ideas. Yes, this yeah. big idea that we're always wrong. That turned out to have been wrong and it was mm. close to me to put his finger on it. But before – by the way, before Moby Dick, did we even have the concept of the great American novel and did we call Sister Carrie that? I, I hope not. I assume that that term yeah. sort of came later when there was this idea that this was a meaningful, important thing to do and also America had been around enough, you know, long enough to really see it as what, you know, what I'm trying to do is an extension of being raised in this country. So it's kind of like a modernist thing. But you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about especially authors and who's going to be the great novelist because, you know, I think someone you quoted as saying there's maybe a 20% chance of the people we think are great now will stay as great or 20% of the people who we think of as great. But I would say... This question about who will be a great novelist is as relevant, is likely to be as relevant as who's the great pointillist debate we're having now. Because we don't have that debate because pointillism has gone away as a means of expression. And I think maybe that's happening to novels. So just as much as your book is talking about, ah, we might shift and we might point to this guy as the great novelist, I think there's just as good a chance that the idea of a great novelist will become so niche that it won't be as big a debate or it will be about as big a debate as like my Modern jazz. Okay, I would I would say two things on that. First of all, in a sense, you're totally right mm -hmm. in that that the hardest thing about trying to predict the future and in terms of how it will see its own past is not so much around the content, but really sort of like the pillars of what thought is. Like like if no one is interested in literature at all, obviously uh, there will be. No concern about you know who used to, but right. but the thing I would that I think is different. The reason I start with literature and books is because I think now books have a meaning outside of themselves. That people you know they use them as art objects in their house, and we have all these phrases like "Oh, she's book smart," or "We're throwing the book at him," or we almost now have 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 built in baked into the way we look at the world this idea that there is a value and import to a collection of written thoughts so maybe in the future there will be no physical books but i have a sense we'll still use that term even if the thing that we're talking about has no relationship to what a book is now but there is that story and it i don't think it's true but it was either Edward Bernays or an early psychologist who his client was the American booksellers. Do you know this story? And the way, instead of telling them what to do to market their books, he just said, let's, let's pair with the American homemakers and build pre-made bookshelves into every American home. And therefore, people will buy more books because the bookshelves are there. Well, I mean, that's a good idea because what what is interesting about books is that unlike so many other things that you purchase, they do say something about 
who you theoretically are if those books have been consumed. Unless they're mm. all now in our devices and we can't see what the person on the subway is reading. And the reason I say this about books is not just the acknowledgement that different forms of media come and go. A hundred years ago, if you were the smartest person around in your town, in your city, you needed a way to get these this smartness out, you'd write a novel. Times were solitary. There wasn't electronic images. There were no other ways to get those great thoughts out. So the top, whatever it was, I'm sure actually there were so many potential brilliant thinkers that we just cast away because they were in America black or in the world women or just too poor to even maybe even be literate. But the greatest thinking was done in books. And I just think that as much as we say it's a shame that if you look at the sale of books or if you look at what we consider a best-selling novel and it could sell just a few thousand copies, I just think that there are brilliant novelists, but there are people who are specifically drawn to the novel. And there are so many other ways to be brilliant, it just seems illogical to me that in a hundred years we're going to say it's still the novel that's the greatest repository of reflection on the human experience. Okay, well, I have two things to say on this too. Mm -hmm. Okay, I used to have thousands and thousands of compact discs. Okay, my, my, the walls of my apartment were covered in compact discs and my wife made me digitize them all and get rid of them and I fought her on this a long time. I did not want to do this and I finally did. And then almost instantly I realized something. I like music. I don't like round metal discs. Uh -huh. Like I didn't miss the discs at all. I didn't care whatsoever once they were gone. I, for some reason, I thought I liked that physical object, but what I actually liked was the content it held. So when we talk about books and novels and these things, when you're talking about is, you know, great thinkers having these ideas, it is true that maybe these will be folded into some other object. But the thing that we like about novels is something that we probably will always like, even if it comes through, I mean, it's very, okay, almost a cliche argument now that a lot of novels have been replaced by like prestige television. Right. And that the kind of person who used to read a novel a month is now like, well, you know, they watched Mad Men or they watched Game of Thrones and that replaces that in their life. I suppose if you get enough distance, you could almost make the argument that all of these things are the same something. And maybe that's really what I'm talking about. I'm using book because we know the terms. But I, I think, think Judd, yeah. but I think Judd Apatow a hundred years ago is a novelist. And I think Woody Allen is the one that spans Philip Roth to Judd Apatow. And that in that Woody Allen thought it was really important to write for the New Yorker and to have the written word. And just Judd right now doesn't feel the need to put it on the page in prose. Uh, that's a complicated thing because what you're also saying is sort of all skills are interchangeable. No. No, you are yeah. because who's to say that that Judd Apatow would have the skill to write a novel. And who is to say that somebody who was writing a book in the 30s, if technology had been different, would have become a filmmaker? You, a lot of this has to do with what, you're, you know, what you personally want to pursue as an artist. But also the thing you were saying about 100 years ago, the smartest guy in your town mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, that is something in and of itself that has changed dramatically. In the past, there was obviously much more emphasis on individual memory. Uh, you know, you are an expert on history because you could remember more about history than other people. Well, now, of course, that has been completely you know, flattened and equalized. Now the ability to acquire knowledge is real. Anyone can do it. You know, you can be an expert on something um, or a quote-unquote expert just by having the information in front of you that you can easily access. So that then changes the meaning of what a smart person is. A smart person is no longer somebody who has sort of the greatest universal memory of an event but who can sort of present their view of the event in a way that seems cogent and sort of provocative and interesting. That's another problem I kind of deal with in this book is just like – 
when a term like that, you know, intelligence or transgressive or any of these things, when those terms change over time, that really alters how we go back and rethink about the past. Yeah. Yes. And so I think intelligence is, I mean, the definition that I've been working with, it's, it's the synthesis. It's you have to have the information and knowing that you could access it on Wikipedia is nice, but it helps to actually have it because it's making connections between these things. And so maybe I analogize the brain to like a computer that makes connections. And since we didn't have computers 200 years ago, they would analogize the brain to a giant library where scribes were, you know, just writing. Oh, no, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I talk about this in this book. You know, there's a part in Bob Dylan's autobiography mm -hmm. where he discusses how he likes to record real long songs like Tom Giotta or whatever, all these verses, because he thinks that there's just like it's enriching to remember yeah. things, you know. And he was born at a time when when you went to school, there was tons of rote memorization. Now, I went to school in the 70s and 80s. That had sort of been lost. There were a few things we had to memorize. The Gettysburg Address, you know, I was Catholic, so I would go to, you know, CYO and have to learn all these prayers, yeah. you know. There's even less of that now. The the, the idea of, of needing to memorize things has, has sort of become something that it almost seems like an irrational thing to force a kid to do. And yet... It's hard for me to get out of the mind frame that that's a big part of what being a smart person is. Yeah. It's sort of like you don't need to look at your computer or a book or an equation to know something. You just know it. But that has changed. So as that continues to erode, how will that affect the way we look back on smart people? Well, would uh. we even – Use the phrase, you know, back when we were doing rote memorization, would we use the adjective rote? I, probably <laughs> not. Yes. It would just be called memorization. Yes. And when know? I remember hearing about, I don't think either of us were alive. No, I know we weren't. When Jay, was it? No, it was when Martin Luther King was shot and Robert F. Kennedy tried to quell a potentially riotous crowd. And I think it was Indianapolis. And he stands on a flatbed truck and he recites an Aeschylus poem from memory. And it's this great moment of bonding with a crowd and being brave. And the thing that always impressed me was that he memorized an Aeschylus oh, poem. Oh, sure. I mean, because anytime you're around a person and they memorize a poem, it's amazing, it's amazing. right? You, you know, should do but that. I, yeah. then some people would say, well, like, you know, to invest the time to memorize a poem, like, that's a kind of privilege. That that oh. you have the luxury of basically memorizing someone else's thoughts. Now, I'm not saying that this is what I think. I'm saying I that know. that argument can be made. Yeah. And I understand where they're coming from that 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 is seemingly a superfluous kind of thing. I remember for whatever reason, when I was in high school, I thought it was really cool to memorize like a Robert Frost poem. You know, it's like on the winter evening, you know, whose woodsies are. I think. How practical is it? I guess I've used it in conversations where people said, does anyone here know poems? <laughs> I mean, that's about as far as it's gone, you know. It's like, yeah. yeah. Or someone said, what's the weirdest thing you ever did in high school? And then you have an answer. Chuck Klosterman, but what if we're wrong? I read that upside down because the book jacket is printed either upside down or right side up, depending on your perspective. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, they, they came in and they said, like, we want to publish the book like this, with, mm -hmm. you know. And my initial reaction was, is like, what is the track record of books where the author's name and the title were published upside down? Mm -hmm. We could not find one. We found many where the title was upside down or something was upside down, but nothing where everything was upside down. So then I was like, we got to do it. Yeah. Chuck Klosterman. But what if we're wrong? Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks a lot. And that's it for today's show. 
Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is governor at large for the Academy of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.